So have you guys ever had like a, um, somebody that you respect or like an authority figure in your life, maybe mom or dad or uncle or somebody, something happened in a situation and you get to learn a lot about that person and the way that they respond to it. When I was about 16 or 17, um, I was super big on baseball, loved baseball. Um, one baseball practice, coach was pitching batting practice. And coach, I think he used to play like semi-pro or something like that. He knew how to throw. He knew how to pitch. And you know, you kind of got the feeling that he was pitching like 50%, you know, to us. One day, one of our uh, teammates was up to bat. And he hits the ball, this like line drive right at coach. And it like turns and like hits him like in the middle of the back or something. And coach just like almost immediately picks up the baseball and chucks it right back at the batter. And the batter barely jumps out of the way and it just misses him. I'll never forget that moment because all of us in the dugout, the rest of the team, our jaws were like in the dirt. Like, did that just happen? And so um, coach, he knew what he did wrong. He's just like, oh, no. And then the batter comes walking back into the dugout. And the guy that was supposed to be up to bat next, he's like, uh-uh, forget that. He comes in the dugout too. And so we're all in the dugout, and we're like, what are we going to do with this? So we see Coach walking towards us, not like horror movie walking towards us, like he's got another baseball in his hand or something. But he's walking towards us with humility. He's kind of going like this. He walks up to, to us in the dugout, and he's, he's like, guys, what I did was totally wrong. It, it was, it, I could have really seriously hurt you. Uh, my job is in your hands. Do, with, do whatever with me, you know, that you want. And so we're talking and we're trying to figure out what to do. Some of us are like, man, he, you know, he shouldn't be given another chance. That was just like, you know, that was overboard, no possible way. Other of us were like, oh, he's genuine. He, he's genuinely sorry. And in that confession, he actually, I don't remember exactly what he said. But something in his confession, he actually mentioned his faith. He said, you know, as a Christian, that, that shouldn't be so with me. And that really stood out. Today, we're going to be going through a passage of scripture where the, with the world that we live in, the climate that we live in, is almost in a sense looking at God as if he is coach in that story. We're going to be looking at basically the pre-flood civilization. We're going to be looking at what motivated God to bring the flood. And in a world and a climate that we live in, I think we're pressured to think that God should repent of this kind of thought process, of this kind of action that he took. But is God like coach? Is God like that situation? Is he responding in a similar way that my coach did. Um, and also, our response to when the world puts pressure on us to either um, leave out those details of God or be ashamed of who our God is. And that basically is what I want to do with the body of Christ today, is I want to I see us strengthened and to not be ashamed of who our God is. But to stand our ground and say, our God is good. Yes, there is judgment, and we may not understand it, but our God is just, 
and good. So that's, that's my goal today. There are basically three things that I want you to take, to take home, these three phrases. Trust his eyes, trust his heart, and trust his plan. Take that, take that home with you. you. You can just repeat it after me. Trust his eyes, trust his eyes. Trust his heart, trust his heart. Trust his plan, trust his plan. So if, if there's, I think that might help you take this content home today. So let's actually read the passage. I'll pray and then we'll read. Father, I just ask that you would open our eyes to see you for who you really are, to see the world for what it really is, to submit to you and uh, see, um, see you as being holy, to see ourselves in need of grace. I pray that the gospel would penetrate the hearts of your people today, that they would be strengthened, they would be revived, they would be refreshed to worship you in a new way, in Jesus' name, amen. So let me read Genesis chapter six, verses one through eight. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. Verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So the first thing I want you to see in trusting his eyes is that when God's omniscience sees under the surface, Trust what he sees, not what we see. But I know there's kind of an elephant in the room. It's this Nephilim. What is this Nephilim thing? Now, I'm just going to be up front and say I'm, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this because there really isn't much that we know about the Nephilim, about these giants. And that's what Nephilim means. It just means giant. So, but if you look at it in the context of like, okay, so who was writing this? Moses. Who was Moses writing this to? Children of Israel. What situation was the children of Israel in? They were supposed to take the promised land, right? They were supposed to take possession of the promised land. What was one of the biggest things about the promised land that scared them to death and made them not want to go in? Giants. It says in the scriptures that they looked at these giants and they felt like little tiny grasshoppers. And they were so afraid that they came back and they wept and wailed. And they were like, what, have, what has the Lord done to lead us into this to die? Wouldn't it be better to, to have died back in Egypt? That's basically their response. So if you look at this whole situation with the sons of God marrying the daughters of men and their babies are giants, 
what on earth is happening here? So I think, first of all, the context, if you look at what's happening, is probably more for the children of Israel than it is for us. I think it's pretty safe to say that. Um, I'm also not going to spend a ton of time on this, but the sons of God, is, they were most likely angels. Uh, in the book of Job, we see that the sons of God approached God and Satan came with them. We see that happen a couple times. So in the times that we do have that phrase, sons of God, it's referring to angels. And it's not too far-fetched when you consider uh, some New Testament scriptures like Second Peter. Second Peter actually tells us that God did not spare angels when they sinned, and he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah. It's specifically referring to a time when angels sinned and men were in disobedience. They were, they were both in disobedience together. And Jude and 1 Peter also allude to the same thing. I'm not going to get... Spend as much time as you want with that. But basically the idea of from verse 1 all the way to verse 4 with this weird stuff of the sons of God and the Nephilim and the giants and God's response saying, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for his days shall be 120 years. He is flesh. Basically what God is saying here is enough. Enough. The damage that sin is causing and the, and the widespread disobedience between men and angels, God is saying, I'm putting a limit on this. I'm, I'm, I'm going to put a limit on the damage that it's causing because of what he sees. So what does he see? If we're going to trust what God sees, what is it that God sees here? So let's look at verse 5. Verse 5 tells us, Verse 5 tells us that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Whew. All, only evil continually. Like, that doesn't leave much open for possibility of that it could have been, you know, they could have had some good in their heart. But the emphasis here. Is, is what I, I'm, I'm kind of interested in this, that the emphasis is not on their deeds. What is the emphasis on? It's on their heart. It says only evil continually. But what I see is when, I, when it says the thoughts, what does it say? Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I see layers. First you have the heart. So you have kind of like the control center. And then you have a deeper layer of the thoughts. The thoughts are like, you know, whatever kind of like the words that are coming out silently that your heart is creating. And then you have a deeper level. This is for the psychology nerds. This is more like the motivation behind it all. Why do we have those thoughts? Why do those thoughts pop up? And so God is looking at a heart that is producing thoughts with motivations behind those thoughts. And he's looking at the deepest possible level of what's going on. And his, his, his verdict is evil. 
So that reminds me of Romans 1, doesn't it? Romans 1 tells us that they, even though they knew God, they did not worship God and they had no excuse. This basically leaves us with an idea that there is no opening for excuse. If it, if it actually said something like their deeds were evil, we, we might be tempted to say something like, well, you know, maybe their deeds were evil, but maybe they, maybe they meant well. You know, maybe, maybe like their, their hearts were in the right place, but that doesn't leave any possibility for any of that. So it actually is the other way around. We actually see not bad deeds with good hearts, but probably deeds that didn't look as bad as you would think, but with hearts that were wicked. Now, why do I say that? Matthew 24 is really interesting. It actually gives us a picture of what it would have looked like to us in these days of pre-flood. Jesus, if you want to turn there, you can. I'm going to turn there real quick. Matthew 24, verses 37 through 39. Matthew 24, 37 through 39. So speaking, the context is no one knows the day or the hour. Jesus says this, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away, swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So when we read this and we go, only evil continually, well, they must have been really bad. I mean, they must have like, had these like black eyes and like zombie people walking around like murdering each other all the time and just looked completely horrible. But wait a minute. How does Jesus describe that day from man's perspective? They were eating. I think of like Olive Garden, man, just like we love good food. It's probably feasting, celebrating. They were marrying. I mean, who doesn't love a good wedding? And they were giving in marriage. That speaks of family. Like, you know, mom and dad are giving away their their kids in marriage and there's celebration going on. I mean, basically what Jesus is describing in this time before the flood is that there wasn't a care in the world. They were loving life. So, this is really interesting to me because if we didn't have that account of Jesus describing this time, we might actually think that this only evil continually was like isolated. Oh, they were just super bad. It was a different time. I don't think so. I don't think so at all. So what about us? As I'm exhorting you to see with God's eyes, I think it would have been really hard for them to see what God saw during that time. And I think it's really hard for us to see what God sees. Think about us. I think one of the main differences between us and them is that the light of the world, Jesus, has come and that the church now being the light of the world is in the world preserving and bringing light. I think that is the only difference. But look at some of the other things 
about who we are today. What about us? Do we see what God sees? I mean, think of Genesis 4. We just went through the fact that they were building cities and they were um, building instruments. They were playing music. Um, If you think about this time too, if you do the math, their population was probably somewhere in the billions. Their technological advances were probably further along than we would think. Imagine someone like Isaac Newton living to be like 900 years. Someone like Elon Musk to be like 900 years old. Consider this time that they were probably pretty far, much more further along than we would originally think. But what about us? It says their wickedness, wickedness was great. What about ours? We murder about 40 to 50 million babies a year globally through abortion. That's approximately 125,000 a day. Since 2021 began, approximately 8 million precious, helpless human lives have been murdered in the womb. Do we see this the way that God sees it? We're too busy calling it a woman's choice. We're too busy calling a baby a pregnancy. This is a precious human life, and we are looking at the situation with rose-colored eyes, lenses, or whatever. We take what is an abomination to God, and we slap happy little rainbows on it. What about, what about us? What about the gossip and the slander and the strife and the bitterness and the malice and the boastfulness that we call social media? Have you been on Twitter or Facebook recently? Man. What about things like sex trafficking and pornography and adultery and violence and biblical divorce? I don't think we're really that much different than them. But what I'm exhorting you to see today is what God sees. Trust his eyes, not yours. But when God sees this, what does he feel? So trust what he sees, but what about, what does he feel when he sees these things? Let's look at verses six and seven. Back It says, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. I want you to trust his heart, and I want you to see in this passage why some, some, some things about his heart are drawn out. So we, we just saw the state of man's heart, right? We just, it was exposed where they were in their heart. But what about God's heart? We get to see so brilliantly how the scriptures reveal that to us in this passage. This actually, if you consider God's heart in his decision to judge, it actually has the power to change how you think of all of the things like judgment and wrath and condemnation and hell. 
These are all the things that are hard for us to think about. But I think this particular passage about what it reveals about what God's heart informs those things so we can think about them more biblically. So we have some emotions that are drawn out from the heart of God in this passage. What are the key phrases that you see? Regret. We see the phrase, it grieved him to his heart. We see him say, I am sorry. Guys, we are watching Yahweh grieve. Have you ever watched someone grieve? What does it indicate about what kind of a situation that they're in? I've been to a few memorial services, and the thing that gets me the most is when I watch the ones closest to the one that was lost. And to see them grieve, it tells me how deep their love is for that person. And isn't that interesting that God, from what he sees, and he's calling it what it is, that he's grieving. I think this is super significant. Super significant. In a world where we are made to feel ashamed of who who our God is and what he has decided to do in things like bringing a flood, there's a temptation to think of him as harsh, as um, maybe someone like Coach who just is in a fit of rage. Or maybe he's distant. Maybe he's cold about it. Maybe he's emotionless. But this passage doesn't paint that picture of who God is. Even in his decision to judge the world here, we're seeing a grieving heart. He grieves because he knows what he must do. It says that he makes the decision here in verse 7, I will blot out man whom I have created. What does it mean to blot out? What is that? Now, blot is, is basically another word for erase or cross out. It's kind of like a writer or, or like an editor term. Um, when you don't have the ability to erase, you cross out. And when you don't have, another way to cross out would be to blot out. In other words, to remove from the script. It's when you see an inconsistency in the script and you want to cover it up or hide it or remove it. All of humanity during this time, God saw as an inconsistency with his holiness. And he knew what had to be done. But... Unlike an editor or a writer, God's attachment to what he's going to blot out is much more personal, isn't it? And I think this is why we see him grieve. He's not cold. He's not not emotionless in this. He has an attachment, a special attachment to what he's decided to wipe out. Now, 
we are told in the scriptures that God hates the wicked. I know that's really hard to swallow, but the scriptures do teach that. Tim Challies, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he's basically a blogger and an author. He said this, Psalm 11.5 puts it bluntly, God hates wicked people. Psalm 11.5 says, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Um, Tim Challies goes on to say, he hates wicked people with his soul. From the very depth of his being, God hates their ways, Proverbs 15.9, their thoughts, Proverbs 15.26, their worship, Proverbs 15.8, their actions, Proverbs 6.18, their evil deeds, Psalm 5.5, and and Tim Challies goes on to say he singles out a special object of his hatred um, of the blasphemous deeds of the Nicolaitans in Revelation. Um, It says, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, Revelation 2.6. So even though in his decision to judge the earth, there is an aspect of hatred for the wicked, but the emphasis of this passage isn't that. Now there are, like, like I said, there are, there are, there's a bigger picture here of what is going on in the heart of God and then there's a mystery. Now how does God love and hate at the same time? Sam's gonna take all your questions on that one. Right, Sam? It's a mystery. But the emphasis of this passage shows an attachment to his creation. He says, I will blot out man whom I have created. You remember this phrase, Imago Dei, that we keep hearing as we go through this? Imago Dei. In my image, in his image. His special attachment is because he made us in his image. We are his image bearers. Now, when he says that he looked upon man and he saw his intentions, he didn't say anything about the animals. Oh, the animals are brutal, so I'm going to wipe them out too. He only focuses on man because man, man and woman, are made in his image. He has a special attachment to us. Now, you know, we we actually look at this and we wonder almost, is God going to, you know, is he going to have any pleasure for man at all? Is he just all pure, just displeasure when he looks at mankind all the time? You know, we know that that's not the case because, number one, we're here, right? He didn't scrap the whole idea of humanity. And we know this because of Noah. Look at verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So trust his eyes, trust what he sees, trust his heart, and trust his plan. When God's grace is freely given, this is what we see in this verse, God's grace being freely given, trust his plan of salvation, not ours. <laughs> the, the, the placement of this verse is brilliant. Because what's happening, we're seeing darkness and evil and the grieving heart of God. And then all of a sudden, favor. 
Isn't that shocking? Like, isn't it kind of jarring? Like, you, you have this progression of negativity and, and, and grieving, and it's heavy. And then all of a sudden, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And doesn't it make you want to exhale? <laughs> so I give you permission to exhale. Because <laughs> that, that was a lot. That's a lot of heavy stuff to, to swallow. But I encourage you to trust God's plan of salvation because when you look at the situation, I think we're supposed to think, wow, God had a plan to save still? I mean, after all of that, the continual evil? Yeah. Yeah, he did. I don't think we're supposed to think, man, God is just so harsh and man, in his decision to, to judge the world, um, he's like coach. He just needs to, he needs to repent of that and come, come to the right place of where, oh, finally he finds favor. He, he finds something good in man when he, when he comes to Noah. We're not supposed to think that way. I know that that may possibly be for you and I know it is for me. Kind of a natural inclination to go, man, harsh, 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 harsh. Oh, there's, there's the God I know. But all of it is the God we know. All of it is the God we worship. So I love this. I love the placement of this verse. It's the but Noah. That God still has a plan to save. Now the phrase he found favor in God's sight. It's an interesting phrase. Because when you see that similar uh, wording in the scriptures... Usually it's a relationship like a king and a subject where the subject comes before the king and he's like, if I have found favor in your sight, please do this thing. It kind of gives you the idea that the person, like the king, has no obligation to grant favor. Um, it is up to his own decision and his discretion to grant this thing or not. That is the, the context of that phrase. Um... So the idea is that the, that the favor is not a payment. Noah didn't earn this. God, in his free grace, gave favor to Noah. The, the King James actually just says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Any KJV only here? I was going to say, you can stay. Because this, this, is, this is good stuff. I'm just playing. Um, so it's clear, though, that Noah is different, but Noah. Noah's different. It says he was a, he's a righteous man in the next passage, in the next, the, uh, next week that I think Sam's going to take that. So it's clear that he's different. But I think that the, the emphasis that this passage is not trying to make is that Noah, uh, that it's not trying to point to Noah's righteousness, but God's plan of salvation. Genesis 5.28, so basically back up, you know, a chapter. We see Noah was set apart. In verse 28 it says, When Lamech had lived 128, or 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from the work of from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. 
It's very clear that Noah was set apart. Why? Because of God's plan of salvation. He was different because he was a foreshadowing of someone to come. Think about it. In the midst of the Lord's curse, you have one man bringing relief and rest and salvation. Does that sound like anybody to you? It's clearly pointing to the greater than Noah. We have a man who finds favor in the eyes of the Lord when no one else could be found that could earn God's favor or that could lift them or rise, uh, raise themselves up out of this corruption. Does that sound like our Savior? So I see the Spirit directing us to focus on our Savior, Jesus Christ, here. So I want to just continue in that direction. And if Noah is clearly supposed to point us to Jesus as we are considering this whole passage of the justice of God and the mercy of God and the heart of God and the heart of man, speaking of God's omniscience when he sees the the earth and he sees under the surface. Speaking of that, consider Jesus who enters into the scene as the only pure, the only righteous, the only worthy man who has ever existed on the face of the planet, whose surface is the same as what's under the surface, who's the only one that had the heart that was good and whose intentions were only holy continually. Think about this. And when the father looked upon his son, what did he say? Behold my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So guys, if we are in Christ, we have this thing called justification. When the father sees, so we're talking about trusting the father, trusting God's eyes and what he sees. I want you to continue in Christ to trust in what God sees when he looks at you. If you're in Christ, you have that same favor that the father, when the father looks at his son and he's like, I'm well pleased. Justification means that the Father can look at you that way when you're in Christ. That is so awesome. That is so refreshing that God could look at me that way, that he sees under the surface and he sees a heart that has been recreated, born again, being molded and shaped to look more like him. And speaking of God's holiness, causing him to feel and act. And if we're going to continue to trust God's heart, consider Jesus who enters onto the scene whose emotions were untainted by sin. See, like, we can't trust our emotions all the time, right? But Jesus can. 
We can trust his emotions. He's the one and only person that can be trusted with his emotions because he was filled with the spirit without measure. And when he looked upon the brokenness of mankind, he felt too because he was God incarnate. And even though he despised evil, like the same way it describes Yahweh here that his heart grieved, it says Jesus was, the, was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And actually, that's Isaiah 53. If you continue to read in Isaiah 53, it actually says that he has borne our griefs and our sorrows. Jesus is the perfect representation. He is God in the flesh. When you look at Jesus, you see God more clearly and perfectly. And this is our high priest. We just sang about that. Our great high priest whose name is love. We have an advocate, you guys. One who sees our sorrows and our griefs and not only bore them on the cross for our justification, but it doesn't stop there. He continues to see your sorrows and your griefs and carries those. He continues to show himself as a God who is not emotionless toward you. A God who is not cold towards you. A God who is very attached to his children. And speaking of God's grace being freely given and trusting in his plan of righteousness, consider Jesus who enters onto the scene as the door the bread of life, the way, the truth, and the life, the one who says, come to me all who are weary and carry heavy burdens. And don't think that we have to come to him as righteous. We come to him as thirsty. We come to him as hungry, and he's the bread. See, his favor is free to us, but it wasn't free to him, was it? He gave his life. It cost him his life to give us the ability to come to the throne of not only holiness, but the throne of grace. So what he accomplished on the cross for us, open the way for grace to be free to us so that we can come as thirsty, as hungry, as those who are weighted down with burdens. And he is our source of everything that we need through Christ. So in a closing statement, I want again the church Brothers and sisters in Christ, we cannot be ashamed of our God. We cannot be ashamed of him. He is to be praised and worshiped and continually worshiped. We are going to feel this pressure to be ashamed of him and ashamed of passages like this. How many times have, 
has this story been brought up as an objection to the gospel, to, to, to the Bible? Yeah, you say that this is a God of love, but what about Genesis 6? Well, what about the flood? And I want you guys to be equipped and say, our God is not a God who, who cannot see clearly of what the situation actually is with the world. Our God sees perfectly what the situation is. And we don't have a God who's emotionless. We have a God who is very attached to his creation and, and, and grieves over the state of humanity. But we also have a God who has a plan of salvation. And so if we're going to continue to trust his eyes, to trust his heart, and to trust his plan, when the world wants to paint a really pretty picture of sin, trust his eyes, not ours. And when the world wants us to treat God as if he needed to repent, trust his heart. And when the world offers many ways to God, ways of salvation, trust his plan of salvation. And with this passage, you guys, we can know that God is love and at the same time, God is just. If we tend to swing one way or the other and fall too heavy on maybe God's wrath or too heavy on God's love, we can know that in the mystery of God, he is love and he is just. And we need not be ashamed of him. All of this for me, when I read this passage and I think through some of the weighty matters that this brings up and how it points me to the gospel and how we understand God as love and God as just, it brings me to what probably Paul was feeling in, when he expresses it in Romans 11. And he basically just bursts forth with worship. And so I'm going to close with this. Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Who has... Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For in him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as your children, as those who have your scriptures. We have your spirit. We are grateful, Lord, that we can read this. And we can understand who you are. We can know you. We can know you on an intimate, personal level. We can have a relationship with you as your children. God, we can know that you are not cold. You're not emotionless. You're not a rage monster. You are just and good. God, help strengthen your people, strengthen your church to never be ashamed of who you are, God but to continue to praise your name in word and in deed. And may our worship and delight in you, in all that you are, God, draw attention to you and bring glory to you. 
that the world may look upon our delight of you and go, who is this God? And God, would you use us to bring the lost? Would you soften our, heart, our hearts towards them that we would not look at the lost as those who are hopeless, but we would look at them with your eyes. God, give us your eyes, give us your heart, and give us your uh, clear resolve and delight in the good news of the gospel, your plan of salvation. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.